0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence based, continually updated, and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions.
1: Hello, and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on bulimia nervosa. Kieran Walters is my name, I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Bulimia nervosa is common. The lifetime prevalence this disorder by age 20 is 2.6% in women, and it can cause serious complications, including psychiatric and physical problems. To tell us about bulimia, we have on the line Professor Deborah Safer, who's co-director of the Stanford Eat and Weight Disorders Program at Stanford University School of Medicine. And importantly, Deborah is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So let's start off by asking Deborah, what exactly is bulimia nervosa?
0: So bulimia nervosa is one of the three main um, categories of eating disorders in the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual that we use as psychiatrists to make the diagnosis, but it can be made by general practitioners. What you're really looking for are a few things. One of them is recurrent episodes of binge eating. And I laugh a little because that seems like, you know, that that binge eating followed by vomiting or some other compensatory behavior like laxative abuse or excessive fasting or excessive uh, physical exercise. I mean, those might seem to be quite obvious things that, you know, people are not going to be very straightforward about telling you um, exactly what they're doing. So you need to often ask, like, do you eat over, let's say, a discrete period of time, maybe within two hours or so, an amount of food that other people would agree is larger than what, you know, a sort of average person would eat during that similar time period or under similar circumstances. And also, importantly, to ask you experience a sense of lack of control over your eating. Um, That's a really important part. Overeating is not the same as binge eating and so it's both has it both has to be a large amount of food objectively large we call it and that's basically you know they'll tell you and you'll decide as a clinician it's it's not only under research circumstances do we make a big deal about what objectively large is but it's a you know eating most of a pizza most people would eat two or three slices if they're eating maybe five or six you know that's that's different most people would have maybe one or two cookies, if they're having five to six cookies, you know, in the large cookies, things like that. And, and that's more than most people would eat. I think you can use your own judgment in that. And then if they feel like they really couldn't stop, then once they started, it felt like they had to, get to the point that they felt overly full. And then afterwards, they felt a need to compensate for what they ate, as I mentioned, through vomiting or purging or, you know, laxative abuse or over-exercise or going through through periods of time where they don't eat anything at all or very, very little. And these binging in um, inappropriate compensatory behavior episodes must occur at least once a week for a period of three months. And the person's evaluation of themselves is really unduly influenced by their body shape and weight. It's a major, major component of their self-evaluation. And the other maybe important thing about making the diagnosis is having a sense that it's taking place in a person who basically is at a normal weight or maybe overweight or because it's not necessarily just for normal weight. But if a person is anorexic and binging and purging, we would use the diagnosis of anorexia binge purge type rather than bulimia nervosa. Some people think that when you're vomiting, you know, you're binging and vomiting, you couldn't also be anorexic, but you, you could be. So that's how I would go about making the diagnosis or recommend others making the diagnosis. It is basically a clinical diagnosis.
1: Excellent. Great. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And you mentioned at the start, there were three eating disorders. One of them is bulimia nervosa. What are the other two?
0: The other two are anorexia nervosa, and um, the third is binge eating disorder, which is very similar in certain ways to bulimia nervosa because it has the binge episodes with loss of control, but it isn't followed by the compensatory behaviors. Then we have a sort of catch-all category where we're looking at things that are sub-threshold, you know, so we we have that as well, but those are the main three that are diagnosed.
1: Okay, great, and and you mentioned lots of symptoms. And I guess some of them, some people might have. Some people might eat a whole pizza and feel a little bit full for an hour or two afterwards. But that is probably not enough on its own to to make a diagnosis. You need to have this constellation of of symptoms together. Is that right?
0: That is correct. An important one being the loss of control. Some people choose to indulge or often people like you know, an example would be the American custom of Thanksgiving, where people are, you know, all kind of eating a whole lot together. That is a decision. And that's not what we would call binge eating. Um, I mean, that is overeating. But that's not the same. As I said, there has to be It's a psychological disorder that is about where the loss of control is felt to be extremely important.
1: Okay, thank you. And um, do women usually still have their periods if they have bulimia nervosa?
0: They usually do because normally their weight is in that range. It's usually the amenorrhea comes with anorexia nervosa. Now, sometimes if a person has bulimia nervosa, they're in a normal range, but they're rapidly losing like 20 pounds in a month or something like that. They might lose their period. Um, and may you know, But I think by that point, we would consider them anorexic. I, I don't know how important it exactly is at that time to rely on the diagnosis itself. But I think at that point, we really want to look for things like their vital signs are abnormal. We see uh, electrolyte perturbations. You know, we wouldn't be focusing so much on whether it's still bulimia or whether it's turned into anorexia. I, I don't know if that, that makes sense. That's how at least I think about it.
1: Okay. Okay, thank you. And w- what you've said so far, you'd largely get from taking a history. Are there any physical signs you might look out for?
0: Absolutely. And there there are clinical criteria for admission to the hospital. So one thing I had mentioned was orthostatic hypotension. Well, I, I don't think I, I just, I think I just said abnormal vital signs, but orthostatic um, hypotension is a uh, part of what we look for as a sign of this, an index of the severity of the um, illness. So for example, if their heart rate increases by 20 beats per minute from the lying to the standing position, or if their diastolic, I'm sorry, their systolic goes down by more than 20 points, or their diastolic by more than 10 points from the lying down supine position to standing. That's concerning. If their potassium is less than 3.5 millimoles per liter, that's very concerning. Um, We look for other things like frequent stress Fractures, um, but that's not necessarily would be a hospitalization kind type thing. If there's blood in the vomit, that would be an indication for hospitalization. If the EKG is showing um, irregularities, if the person has just bradycardia overall, we'd be worried. Um, about that, like if, if their pulse is less than 50 beats per minute um, during the daytime or less than 45 at night, and also if they are cold, their temperature is um, less than 35.6 degrees Celsius. Those would be things we that would indicate to us beyond just the clinical that this is um, at a state that the person should be hospitalized.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess some of those might be features of anorexia as much as they would be bulimia is that yes,
0: correct Yes that is correct
1: Okay okay great and in terms of physical signs of bulimia um sometimes you read about the teeth being affected is is that common or is that is is it bulimia got to be really severe for that to be the case
0: well, I would say not so much that the bulimia has to be that severe, but that it's more prolonged. It takes time for the teeth enamel to start eroding, but dentists are very good at picking up um, eating disorders like bulimia nervosa and, and we'll mention it. And sometimes that will be what triggers a person to come in for treatment because their dentist commented and they might deny to their dentist what they were doing, but, you know, they don't want their teeth to, to be, you know, so damaged. So they'll come in that can be a reason. Sometimes also gastroparesis, you know, like going to a GI doctor or sort of feeling very constipated. Sometimes the reason there is also that they're vomiting. And so, you know, their their whole GI system starts to be perturbed.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, tell us about pitfalls in diagnosis. What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis?
0: Well, you know, I think the major thing is that it's a very secretive disorder. So people may not tell you the truth about what they're doing. It's filled. People are filled with shame that they're doing something that most people would find rather disgusting in many ways, especially in terms of purging, and. Um, the other sort of pitfall is that unlike anorexia nervosa, where people start to look very malnourished, their hair falls out, you know, they you can look at them often and, and sort of tell they're not well. They're starting to look emaciated. And uh, a person with bulimia nervosa often looks quite healthy because the weight is maintained, the estrogen is maintained, so they're usually not losing their periods, not that, you know, that, that's something so observable, but I think it's a sign that they're generally, their body is getting what it needs. The problem is more these long-term consequences, like the risk for osteoporosis, which will come up, the um, teeth erosion, the uh, stress fractures also, you know, as, you know you, you see in a dexa scan that they're osteopenic or osteoporosis but the effect of that would be getting frequent uh, stress fractures if they're especially if they're exercising a lot their heart rate will be low but they're often very athletic and so people will think oh they just have a low heart rate because they're athletes when actually it's part of an eating disorder it's low because they're they're restricting for periods of time their heart isn't working exactly as well but i would agree that more often that is seen as you said, in anorexia nervosa. And some people with bulimia nervosa will have anorexic periods, but basically come then, they can't maintain it for as long as a person, in my opinion, who sort of is, you know, anorexic, a truer form. Like most of the eating disorders, people can cross over. A person with binge eating disorder might try purging for a period of time, but usually they won't keep it up and they'll go back to basically not binge, not using compensatory behaviors a person with bulimia nervosa may restrict and lose a lot of weight and get into an anorexic category but usually they won't maintain it for that long and they will go back to holding a normal or higher
1: weight okay and you mentioned purging a couple of times tell us what exactly is purging
0: so purging is vomiting and it can be done um I mean, it's purposeful. Um, People use different methods to purge after they feel they have eaten too much. And they often sometimes will use eat in a certain order so that let's say they will have something with tomato sauce early. So when they purge, they want to make sure they purge everything out to the point that they see something like tomato sauce. It takes a lot of time to purge. It's one of the problems with the disorder. You have to go secretively after a meal to a bathroom. It has to be a private bathroom usually, or people will hear you. And um, it's one of the things when a person is hospitalized that we we stand, you know we have a, a nurse or someone monitoring the use of the bathroom after a meal.
1: Okay, and do some uh, people take laxatives?
0: Yes. Yeah, so so when I meant purging, I meant vomiting. But um, it's true that laxative abuse is another compensatory behavior that um, is used to help the person in the short run feel that they've expelled the food and they feel lighter. Um, the truth is that most food has already been absorbed by the time the laxative is operating um, in the, you know, uh in the colon. And so it's usually most of the absorption has already occurred in the small intestine, but it feels like you're lighter. And so, um, so though the calories mostly have been absorbed, it is used and then has a lot of problems when the body becomes dependent on laxatives to have a bowel movement. So, um, and it, it causes electrolyte disturbances in the same way that vomiting does, which I should have mentioned.
1: Okay. And, and, what uh, what laxatives might people take, I wonder?
0: They take over-the-counter laxatives like, um, you know, Senna and SennaCot, you know, like diet, they're these diet teas. People um, use, uh, you know, like Ducalax and other type of of laxatives, mostly they're always over-the-counter laxatives that they just buy in a drugstore. That, and they can differentiate when they're using them because a the doctor recommended a laxative versus when they're overusing the amount. Um, you know, um, a colleague of mine wrote a case report on the use of Ally. I don't know if that's, um, it's, it's Xenocal. It's a, a lipase inhibitor. So that has been used to, uh, as a compensatory, inappropriately as a compensatory measure.
1: Okay. Okay. Th- thank you. This is really, really helpful. Let's move on to management. How, how, how should you manage this condition?
0: Well, psychotherapy is really um, the treatment of choice. The problem is that um, therapists trained in evidence-based um, approaches are not that easy to find. But I'll tell you what the three different treatments of choice are. Um, one of them is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really addressing both the distorted cognitions where you know often a person will think, well, I ate um, you know, a cookie. That's the end. You know, now I have to eat them all. That kind of black and white thinking, dichotomous type thinking. Um, so that gets addressed. And also the behavioral, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. The the pattern of eating in which people people often will skip breakfast and maybe lunch, and then they'll, you know, binge in the evening or late afternoon. That pattern needs to be regulated we find that the the best way of eating when you have an eating disorder is to eat three meals a day with at least two snacks to help regulate the hunger. Because if a person is restricting their eating to such an extent, often to make up for the fact that they binge the night before, they're really setting themselves up for a binge and purge the next day.
1: Okay. Thank you. And besides cognitive behavioral therapy? There are other treatments?
0: There are. Um, one actually is a self-help version of cognitive behavioral therapy. So Christopher Fairburn has written a book, um, Overcoming Binge Eating, that can be used on one's own to, um, to, to work through both the cognitive distortions and the behavioral aspects that need to be addressed. So that is something if, if a person... Can't, if you, let's say, as a a clinician, don't have somebody that you can refer to, um, or the patient can't afford it or doesn't have the time, then recommending that book is an excellent evidence based way to to treat bulimia nervosa. Um, So CBT or in guided self-help form. So the other thing would be if the person's working with a therapist they already like, but the person isn't trained in eating disorders, the therapist can get the book too and can be somebody that the patient can be accountable to um, as they work through. A second um, method. So I actually, when I said three methods, the third method was really um, the guided self-help or self-help, but maybe a A third method then is the dialectical behavior therapy, which is something I've done research on with patients who don't maybe so much restrict their eating, but they emotionally eat. They have emotional triggers that lead them to binge and then purge. And so for some patients, that might be um, an approach that would seem to fit better. But there are more um, studies supporting cognitive behavioral therapy. And I would say that that is the treatment of psychotherapeutic treatment of choice. But these days we do recommend starting with guided self-help in sort of a stepped care fashion so that if you wouldn't, didn't respond to a guided or self-help, you know, unguided, then you would then look for a trained therapist.
1: Okay. Thank you. And what about drug treatments, SSRIs or SNRIs. Do they have a role?
0: They absolutely have a role. Um, So fluoxetine is, for us, FDA approved as the as a treatment. It's the only FDA approved drug that we have for bulimia nervosa. Is uh, fluoxetine and Prozac Um, at a dose of 60 milligrams. It a dose like 20, which we might use for depression, is really not shown to be as effective as a dose like 60. So you would start slower and move up, because often patients with bulimia nervosa have comorbid anxiety disorders, and so sometimes fluoxetine, especially, can be kind of agitating, and um, so it's, it's helpful to but aim for 60 milligrams at three months before deciding that you haven't had a complete trial. Some people really take more. The same as when if we're we're treating obsessive um, compulsive disorder, that often also takes higher doses of SSRIs. So SSRIs are the treatment of choice. SNRIs are also effective. Um, I've not seen studies comparing SSRIs to SNRIs. Um, But if a person has, let's say, a comorbid serious depression, there there might be some reasons you might want to have more... um, you know, to be also looking at other neurotransmitters like dopamine or something like that. The one medication that is contraindicated in bulimia nervosa is um, bupropion because of the risk of higher risk of a seizure um, with patients with bulimia nervosa.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, any pitfalls in, in, in management? What are the main pitfalls in management?
0: Well, I feel that one of the main pitfalls is that this is. An extremely difficult disorder to treat for many patients because it's their main way of coping with distress is under eating or binging and purging, and finding alternatives is difficult. You know, even with with psychotherapy, it it takes a lot of work to record your food, to think about what was going on in the time you ate, you know, to come up with other skills to use. To replace this habit, it's an overlearned habit. As we see, it's a behavior that, you know, in some ways, you know, need, not so much needs to be unlearned. That's what we used to say. We now learn you, you. We now understand you can't really ever unlearn a behavior, but you can learn new behaviors that that can, you know, go on top of it and become the new ways of coping. Um, but I, I do think that prevention or early treatment is really our best um, approach. I mean, because the pitfalls are, I think that it's ingrained, that it's secretive. People, I've worked with patients who have been married for 20 years and their husband um, or their partner has no idea. Um, So to me, that is the basic thing is that, and it's also a culture that promotes the thin ideal. It's hard to work around that when somebody is very afraid that if they ate and didn't throw up, that they would gain rapid amounts of weight. Um, and so, I, to me, those are, are the pitfalls. Um, I do think we have some new approaches to management that are exciting. So, in addition to the SSRIs, which I mentioned, topiramate and anticonvulsant has been shown to be very helpful for um, people with bulimia nervosa. Um, it, it seems to, in a way that SSRIs don't quite in the same way, to affect satiety. And that seems to be helpful, not being so hungry or being able to feel full more easily seems to be helpful for some of these patients. There's also some evidence but in pilot form, not randomized studies, that a combination of topiramate with phentermine, which is actually an appetite suppressant that has been FDA approved for obesity, that combination also seems to be helpful for patients with bulimia nervosa and doesn't lead to excessive weight loss, but seems to be quite helpful. But again, um, and in terms of psychotherapy, a family-based approach has been um, designed. We used to have a family-based approach, or the Maudsley method, which was, um, you know, first uh, discovered or um, you know um, promoted in um, Britain, was um, initially used for the treatment of anorexia nervosa. But it's now been adapted for the use of patients, mostly adolescents, who have bulimia nervosa. So that seems to be very promising because I think treating patients when they have this disorder and are still living with their families really is helpful beyond uh, the, by the time they're adults, though we can treat it. The truth is, I, I would say in, in terms of uh, what are we missing is we're treating on average 30 to 50% of our patients, getting them to absolutely be abstinent or in remission from binging and purging. We have, we, we need Better treatments, where some of those treatments might involve the use of virtual reality to enhance treatments, um, I think more work with guided self-help, maybe online versions, so that it's not completely unguided, um, but that maybe it's not really a therapist because those are hard to find. Those are some of the things that I, I think are promising avenues, given how difficult it is for many patients to stop turning to binging and purging as a way of coping with so many stresses in life.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Deborah. That's all extremely helpful. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that you found it helpful also, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned in action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant illnesses. Thank you once again.